Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the, um, to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for I, the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. And then we go on to uh, carry on from verse 29 over the page. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and and he spoke to them. Afterwards, Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded... They saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord again. Well, a very good morning to you. It's great to have you with us here this morning. And uh, we are in Exodus 34, continuing our series through this great book. And it's page 93 of the Pew Bibles, if you've closed them. And as we turn together to look at God's word, let's pray for his help. Father, we've seen in the book of Exodus how 
wonderful and awesome and powerful the Lord is. We pray that you would help us, therefore, this morning to humbly sit under his word. We ask that you would give us hearts that are hungry. Please help me to be faithful. And we ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, when Lorna and I were engaged and preparing to get married, we attended some marriage preparation classes with an older couple from our local church then. They were brilliant, really helpful. Um, I would uh, commend anyone thinking about getting married to also think about uh, marriage preparation uh, courses. I do remember on, on one particular night, as we, as we talked with this couple, they asked us if we had had our first major disagreement as a couple. There was a slight awkward pause as we thought about how to respond to this rather personal question. And then after a moment's pause, I think almost simultaneously, I said no, and Lorna said yes. (laughs) Which, of course, made things even more awkward at that point. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? It's the right kind of question, not just within marriages, but within any relationship. How do you resolve conflict when it occurs? When a wrong has been committed, there's a breakdown in the relationship. How do you move on from that point of, of crisis? Because it's, it's very hard for any relationship to survive any length of time unless you know how to move on from that kind of breakdown. That is very much, I think, the question hanging over Exodus 34. How do you move on from a, a breakdown in a relationship? I guess the word conflict is often used to describe how you resolve these things, but I'm not sure conflict really gets us to the heart of what's happened in Exodus. Uh, If you've been with us these last few weeks, we've seen how the Lord has wonderfully rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, powerfully bringing them to himself at his mountain. And yet after revealing his wonderful, remarkable character, which comes into focus so clearly in Exodus, where we see the character of his people also coming into focus for They are, as the Bible says, a stiff-necked people, refusing to go the Lord's way and follow his word, and culminating in the terrible events of the golden calf that we saw a few weeks ago. This isn't so much conflict within a relationship. This is raw rebellion within a relationship. Um, It's how do you avoid dying in this relationship kind of question. For the Lord's response in Exodus is is anger. He he says, I will wipe out this people before he relents to a certain point. And the big question hanging over Exodus at this point is, how can this relationship move on? How can this rebellion be, be dealt with such that things get back to normal between God and his people if they ever can in the future? Well, wonderfully, in Exodus 34 this morning, we we get the answer. And the answer is yes, things can move forward. It's a chapter of fresh starts. And we see that straight away from verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Now, Moses wasn't clumsy with the first tablets If you remember, um, having had them inscribed with the words of God's um, conditions for the relationship between God and his people, as Moses came down the mountain carrying these tablets, he saw the people worshipping a golden calf, and in anger and despair, he he broke them on the ground. 
symbolically showing that the covenant was broken. It's like he, he tore up the contract between God and his people. But here the Lord says, take some, some new tablets and I will rewrite onto them the conditions of your relationship. And just like the first time we see Moses heading back up the mountain on his own to be with the Lord and no one else can come near the mountain. This is the, the sort of same process that we saw happening earlier on in Exodus. And then after the words of great hope and promise, then comes the reality, verse 10. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before seen in any nation in all the world. This is a fresh start. Not a new covenant, but a reboot of the old one. And what follows from verse 10 through to the end of verse 28 is a sort of summary of the key headlines of how the Lord wants his people to live again with him in this relationship. It's a wonderful moment. After the the rebellion of the golden calf, the relationship is moving on. It's still intact. But the big question for us this morning is how? The answer we find here in Exodus 34 is foundational for the rest of the Bible. This is the first time that God's people have broken his covenant like this. And so this is the first time we discover how the Lord is going to repair that kind of broken relationship. And what we discover in Exodus 34 is a theme that comes up again and again and again throughout the rest of the Bible. It is God's persistent way of fixing a persistently rebellious people. And it's our answer this morning for how the Lord forgives our rebellion and gives us a fresh start. And so for each of us here this morning, we would do very well to make sure we are crystal clear on what it takes for our relationship with the Lord to be repaired such that we can move on with him. The answer before us lies with what happens when Moses goes up the mountain. Uh, Last week we saw Moses asking for the Lord to reveal his glory. Well, this is the fulfillment of that request. The Lord passes by Moses. But the big point isn't so much about what Moses sees with his eyes, but rather what he hears with his ears. And he hears the Lord proclaim the wonderful words of verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The Lord, God's personal relational name. This church has a vicar. Uh, He's uh, leading our meeting this morning. Vicar is the the job title of the one who leads the church, humanly speaking. But of course, the the vicar also has a name, Paul. Um, He's a person with a personal name. There's a difference between the the job title and the personal name, Vicar Paul. Well, so too with the God of the Bible. God, the job title, the Lord, his personal name by which he reveals himself to his people. It's the name that we find being described again and again through Exodus. 
as God reveals himself to his people. And this morning, I want to just spend our time savoring these two verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, as we linger over the revelation we find behind the name the Lord. For these are foundational and wonderful words for us as Christians. I've got five key words. We could look at more that I want to bring out from these verses. The first word is this. The Lord is compassionate. Verse 6. Some time ago, I was reading a, a book written by a guy called Jim Collins. He's a, a sort of management guru, thinker kind of person. And over the years, he's watched hundreds of businesses being managed by, by um, managers. And he's noticed again and again and again, there's a pattern that emerges almost all the time amongst big businesses, which is that the kind of person that rises to the top of a management structure is a person who has lots of drive and lots of personal force behind them. That's what it takes to get to the top of a company. But that same kind of person with personal drive and force is also the kind of person who very rarely has any compassion about them at all. And the people under that kind of manager suffer. Not so with the Lord. He is unrivaled in his power. He has tremendous personal drive for he always accomplishes his plans and purposes. That's clear from Exodus. Yet he is compassionate. Right back in Exodus chapter 2, when the people were groaning in their chains back in Egypt, we discover that the Lord heard the cries of his people and he was concerned for them. You see, the Lord isn't so majestic and powerful and mighty that he doesn't also have compassion for each one of his people. It's a remarkable blend, this power and this compassion. And he loves to hear his people cry out to him. It's not a a hassle or a burden when he hears his people in distress crying out for his help because he is a compassionate God. We don't need to twist his arm to get his attention or to somehow um, play games with this Lord to win his favor. When we are deeply in despair, he is deeply moved. As we bring before him our plight and problems, our sin and sorrows, He deeply cares about these things. And the first reason why this covenant relationship is back on again between the Lord and his people is because the Lord is compassionate. Next, he's gracious. The Queen of England offers a form of relationship to lots of people I understand people are invited to Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen. And almost always the invitation comes to worthy people. Think of a war hero injured in action, a charity worker helping the vulnerable, a community leader working hard to make neighborhoods a better place for us to live in. And it's good and right that the Queen does invite those kinds of worthy people in to meet her and have some kind of relationship with her. But the invitation of Exodus 34 to be in a relationship with the Lord is completely different. Imagine you had to write a letter of commendation on behalf of the people of Exodus to the Lord, asking him to accept them and welcome them back into relationship. What could you say? 
successfully enslaved in Egypt, trapped and helpless for 400 years. Tick. Constant grumbling from the word go. Rejected new leader Moses, complained every step of the way. Tick. Helpless, so had to be carried on eagle's wings to the mountain. Tick. Made empty promises that they then broke within seconds. Tick. Have rebelled against the only one who has loved them and cared for them and rescued them. Tick. Are now currently sitting on the desert floor with ornaments piled around them, mourning, helpless, and hopeless. Tick. That's all you could say on behalf of the people before the Lord. What do they deserve? God's judgment. And yet we discover he offers them relationship. Why? Simply because he is gracious, giving us things we don't deserve. At times we fool ourselves into thinking that we are heroes. Somehow the story, perhaps it's because we live in S10, Perhaps we have good jobs or a good reputation amongst some people. Perhaps we have good family connections or we look at our children or grandchildren and they seem to have turned out well and so we think somehow we are the hero of the story. But the reality is, if you knew my thoughts and my heart and my motivations this week and you had to write on my behalf a letter of commendation to the Lord about Pete Scammon, you'd have nothing to say. For we are like the people of Exodus. And until we realize that we are not the heroes of the story or this relationship, we will never grasp the wonder of that little word, verse 6. Gracious. And this is why the Lord offers again this relationship to us sinful people who don't deserve it. The Lord is gracious. Word number three, or uh, thought three, he is slow to anger. We've all been around people with a short fuse. Sadly, if I haven't had coffee before 10 o'clock in the morning, I am often like that. Um, Perhaps there's a boss in our work or a neighbor that we are just a bit cautious about. And if we know someone who has a short fuse, it it can be exhausting tiptoeing around them. Uh, We don't know any given day whether we're going to get happy boss or angry boss. Unpredictable, but not so with the Lord. He doesn't snap under particular kinds of circumstances. He doesn't feel the strain of looking after the universe. Things don't get to him. He is eternally and perfectly content and happy within himself. He doesn't take out frustrations on other people. And so he is slow to anger. His fuse is very long. And that is, again, why he re-offers relationship to a rebellious people. He is slow to anger. Number four, there is steadfast love. Or as verse six puts it, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's one of our great heart longings, isn't it? To be in a relationship where the other person resolutely, consistently, lovingly commits to us through whatever happens in life. It is why I think so many films and books that we encounter around in our age and stage are about this narrative of of commitments, whether it's in marriage, romantically, or just amongst friends, trying to grapple with this issue of, of commitment and loyalty throughout life. 
And I can't back this up, but my guess is that recently, increasingly, films and books don't end happily with this issue. Often the marriage doesn't work out. Often the friendship doesn't survive. Because I think there's a sense of cynicism in our world because we've experienced ourselves so much disappointments regarding loyalty and friendship in our relationships. But not so with the Lord. He is the ultimate example of relational faithfulness, steadfast love. Finally, he is forgiving. He is very forgiving. We read in verse 7 that he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That, that pretty much covers every kind of option you can conceive of a wrongdoing. It covers the whole works of how we can wrong God. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he is the kind of Lord who forgives people who are wicked and rebellious and full of sin. Which does mean that here this morning in this room, there is no one who is beyond God's forgiveness. There is no narrative, no sequence of events, no habits, no positions in life where we can say, I am beyond God's forgiveness. Everyone is able to receive this offer. Even for people who have bowed down and worshipped the golden calf, having sworn seconds before they would never do that. This is why the covenant is back on again. Nothing's changed. If people have done nothing, they're still sitting around in groups with their ornaments cast on the ground from Exodus 33. They've done nothing. What's changed is a revelation of God's character. And we find again and again throughout the Bible that God's people break his covenant again and again. They rebel against him. And yet he reaches out with this kind of character. It almost sounds too good to be true that there is one, the Lord, who is like this. Is he really that compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and able to forgive this kind of sin? Well, yes, he is, and we know it most fully and most gloriously in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the one who lived a life full of utter compassion and also died a death of utter grace and forgiveness. And as we come In a moment to eat bread and drink wine together, let us remember afresh that uh, we do know the Lord is like this once and for all in the Lord Jesus as he died on the cross for us. And I think this morning as we process what these words mean for us as Christians, I think the great call of Exodus 34 is to be a people who get up off the dusty floor of the desert, who, who put off the signs of mourning, and who come running back to the Lord and recommit ourselves to following him. That's the, that's the call of Exodus 34. And if you've come here this morning dragging yourself to the church meeting full of a sense of guilt and despair, come this morning and enjoy the meal and rejoice in forgiveness. And then leave here this morning recommitted to worshiping the Lord alone. For who else or what else in the world can do this for us? But before we head to a close this morning, we need to pause at the end of verse 7, for the verse ends on an uncomfortable note, does it not? Look at how it ends, verse 7. 
Yet the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. He, he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. My th- first reaction to this verse this week preparing was that it feels like this kind of pulls the rug from under your feet. On one hand, we have these remarkable promises of forgiveness. And then it seems at the end of verse 7, ah, but if you're guilty, God will punish you. I'm sort of left wondering, well, where does it leave us? What kind of assurance do we have about the Lord's view of us going forwards? Well, let me give you one worked example of how these verses are used elsewhere in the Bible. I think they help us to understand uh, what's going on here. You might know the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah and the whale sent uh, ultimately to preach a message of God's judgment to the great and wicked pagan city of Nineveh in Assyria. And he did go eventually, and he did preach a warning about God's judgment. And we discover in the book of Jonah that um, the king of Assyria heard the warning, and he said, perhaps the Lord will be compassionate and forgive us. The city turned and repented, and the Lord stepped back from his anger. And as Jonah processed what he saw, he was angry with God. He was grumpy. And he quotes Exodus 34, and he said, God, I knew you would do this. Because you are compassionate and gracious. You forgive people who are wicked. And he's, Jonah is frustrated with the Lord for his behavior. And this is important because it shows us how to apply Exodus 34. You see, Nineveh had been a tremendously wicked city. No doubt about that at all. Appalling things. You can read about Nineveh in the book of Nahum. And yet the offer comes of forgiveness. As they heard the word preached. And they did turn around, they repented, and they cast themselves on the mercy of the Lord, and he forgave them. And that seems to be the thrust of the first part of Exodus 34, verse 6, and first part of 7. The Lord does forgive those who turn to him. But I think the implication is that if Nineveh hadn't turned and repented, then they would have remained in their guilt, and the Lord would have judged them. That seems to be the implication of the offer. You can choose life by repenting or choose judgment by not repenting. And I think that's the point of Exodus 34, verse 7. For those who turn and cast ourselves on the mercy of the Lord, he does forgive us, verse 6 and verse 7. But for those who make a habit through a lifetime of pushing away the offer of forgiveness, there will come a moment when the Lord does respond by judging the guilty. And so, of course, the call, I think, in verse 7 is not to be like people who make a lifetime habit of rejecting God's call to repent and to turn back to him. It is a good thing that the Lord does judge this persistent, lifelong rebellion. We don't want the Lord to turn a blind eye to that kind of evil, do we? I don't understand fully who's to blame or what's happening in places like Aleppo or Mosul, but I do know there's tremendous agony taking place in, at the moment. And I know humanity is involved in all our sin in those moments of suffering. I do want the Lord to step in at some point and act to judge the guilty parties involved in what's happening there. We escape his judgment by turning and repenting. And when we do, he is gracious and compassionate. What about this business of the children being judged? <laughs> Again, it, it looks like a a miscarriage of justice because why should a child be judged for the sinful action of a father? 
That's again what it seems to be saying here in verse 7. But I don't think that's the point of verse 7. Later on in the Bible, you can check this out later if you want to, but in Ezekiel chapter 18, we discover that each person will have to give an account for their own personal sin. The sin of one person won't be cast on to the sin of another. Each person responsible for their own sin. And so what is happening here, it can't be that the father sins over here and then an innocent son over here is, is judged. That's not what's happening. That's against the whole flow of the Bible. What I think is happening is that the Lord judges the children because they sin like their parents. There is a sense in which sin takes hold of families and when it becomes the atmosphere and norm, it doesn't just impact the parents, it it rubs off on the children. And when the children begin to copy their parents in rebellion against the Lord, so they too will experience his judgment if they persist for a lifetime. We see this in the Bible, don't we? Think of the kings of Israel. Um, One king uh, does wicked in the eyes of the Lord. His son does the same. The, The pattern cascades down from generation to generation. Sin is is so often copied. I guess for the people of Israel, there's a real challenge for them that their particular response in this moment, will they get up off the desert floor and come back to the Lord in repentance? If they do this, then their children will copy them and find forgiveness. But if they harden their hearts and rebel, it's not just the parents that will suffer. There'll be a cascade down through the generations. It is a challenge, I think, for us parents here today. We have a tremendous influence over our children. We like football, so often our children like football. We have a problem with our temper, so often our children have a problem with their temper. I'm not saying it's always the case, but there's often a pattern. And when we make a habit of playing loose and fast with the Lord's grace so often our children also make it habits of playing loose and fast with God's grace. And so the warning of Exodus 34 is clear. On one hand, the Lord is unbelievably forgiving to those who come back to him in repentance. But there is a challenge here, and maybe some of us here this morning have made a habit of hearing God's offer again and again, but never making it a personal thing for us, choosing to come back to him. Perhaps we, we just don't think that God will do anything other than forgive us. That's just his job description as the Lord. But unless we repent, God will judge the guilty. There is so much more we could say in this amazing chapter. I wish we had more time to talk about Moses' face shining with the reflected glory of the Lord or how that points us forward to our own faces as Christians shining with the glory of Christ. But we don't have time this morning, I'm afraid. They say that conflict resolution is crucial for any relationship to survive. Well, this morning we've seen how the Lord solves the great problem of sin and rebellion amongst the people as they relate to him. We can do nothing to fix that relationship, but instead we must rely fully on the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin.